Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is the first of two episodes we're doing on The House of the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. This story was published in 1908. This episode is our recap episode, and uh, we'll be doing another episode that is the discussion episode. Uh, what I don't know, this year 1908 jumped out to me because I've been doing a lot of reading on William O'Pachson for this episode and didn't realize he died in World War I uh, in April of 1917, a few months before the war ended. So this was about nine years before his death that he, that he published this n- novel. Yeah, do you know what he was doing in in 1908? I, is he, he certainly wasn't being a sailor. At he that he point, was a body he was a bodybuilder, I think. Uh, I, I I don't know. He was a pre- professional writer. I know in the uh, I don't know five years before this, five or six years before this, he was trying to get his writing career off the ground, and he opened up a uh, like a beach body fitness center uh, franchise, basically <laughs> before right. those were a thing. He was a super into bodybuilding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, William Hope Hodgson is basically English Jack London, right? He was trying to be Jack London, but in, in England. And I think, you know, more or less succeeded at it. Well, we should say, too, that this episode was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters, and, uh, and we're very thankful for that. We love to do these. And of course, that that type of support is really uh, important for keeping us on the air. So the, the format of this, as Brandon said, we're going to do two episodes. I mean, we are doing an entire novel in just two episodes, which is, of course, very different from how we usually do things. So we're going to spend one episode, and that's this episode, doing a very hasty recap, and then we'll have the discussion episode. Uh, So this will be more of a synopsis than the type of recap that we normally do. Right. I mean, both are going to be technically hasty, uh, given our proclivity to long-windedness on a lot of the novels we cover. (laughs) Um, But we're going to hit a lot of the major stuff in the recap. We're going to save a lot for the discussion. Uh, and then the discussion is going to have a lot of, I guess, things of interest that came up in the text. We'll d- dive deep into some uh, classic literary critiques, um, but it'll still probably feel like hasty compared to what we usually do. But I think we're going to cover a lot of ground with this book, and I'm excited to do so. Yeah, well, let's let's just do it then. Let's get into it. So there there is quite a bit of prefatory material before the the narrative actually begins. And and first up is a poem that is dedicated to Hodgson's deceased father. And then we actually get a note from Hodgson himself. And this note explains that Hodgson has merely prepared this manuscript for publication. He didn't write this. It is someone else's writing. And he's just submitting it for our consideration. And part of his note challenges us to to wonder whether this is merely someone else's fiction or if it's a true account. But he wants to be very clear that he definitely did not write this, though, of course, he did. Uh, And then after that, we get a second poem. Uh, This one is actually part of the manuscript that he's presenting as the one that he has found, though Hodgson tells us that this was not part of the account. It was actually on a separate piece of paper and stuck to another page, which I guess gives some, some reality effect to the idea that there's a material artifact that Hodgson is simply cleaning up and presenting and preparing for publication. Now, normally, right, if we were doing the page-by-page close reading that is our usual MO here on the network, we would probably end up spending, I guess, I don't know, at least 20 minutes on all of this material that I've just described. But since we're trying to recap the whole book in under an hour, I'm going to move us on to the first bit of actual narrative. And I think, Brandon, I'll suggest that we just come back to all this prefatory material in our discussion episode. So let's just get straight into the first chapter. 
And and here's the deal. This book is a frame narrative, or at least this first chapter is the frame around the real heart of the story. Uh, and I guess we've seen that already, at least just in the sense that Hodgson pretending not to have written this material is uh, its own frame of sorts. But this first chapter is the account of how two other people who are not Hodgson, but also did not write this manuscript, found the manuscript that very definitely was also not written by Hodgson. So the year is 1877. We're in Western Ireland, a remote part of it at that. It's a rural area of County Galway where the locals speak only Irish, or at least what the narrator thinks is probably Irish, uh, which matters because our our narrator and his companion are, are English. And there is definitely a sense here that Maybe this language is just not known at all to any outsiders of this community. It's a, a real sort of weird fiction deal here. Uh, or that maybe these well-off Englishmen are just totally dismissive of the, the native languages of the empire. Uh, we've certainly seen Hodson do both of these things before. Uh, so it you know, could be either of them and, and maybe somehow might actually be both, I suppose. But in any case, the landscape itself is bleak and desolate. Uh, the river that runs through this area has no name. The village also has no name. And neither of them are marked on any map. Our narrator and his companion are here on a fishing holiday, and so they are backpacking deep into the country, and they're wild camping. And this is the context in which they find the manuscript, uh, as well as finding the actual house on the borderland. Uh, Or maybe the house they find is not the house on the borderland. That's uh, probably something we should talk about in the discussion episode. But (laughs) in any case, in any case, they find something weird. Uh, And I'm going to read this passage, though I I want credit. I want full credit here for resisting the urge to just read this whole chapter into the microphone, because it is all just gorgeous landscape descriptions. I mean, I think we mentioned already William Hope Hodgson, the English Jack London. Uh, and so this is totally my jam. But I'm going to make some allusions here for those of you who are following along with the book. But here's what Hodgson writes. I looked up and across to the further side of the chasm. There I saw something towering up among the spray. It looked like a fragment of a great ruin. As we neared this new thing, I saw that I had not been mistaken in my first impression. Yet now I made out that it was not built upon the edge of the chasm itself, as I had at first supposed, but perched almost at the extreme end of a huge spur of rock that jutted out some fifty or sixty feet over the abyss. In fact, the jagged mass of ruin was literally suspended in mid-air. So naturally, they investigate, and and this is where they find the manuscript, which is a, a journal that they find under some debris. The whole experience here is unsettling, though nothing bad actually happens to them, uh, even if we, the readers, are waiting for it the entire time that they're messing around in these ruins. Uh, They get out of there, and eventually this journal gets to Hodgson 30 years later. And so this is what we get of the the frame narrative at the beginning, just just this one opening chapter. But I really love it. I, I wish there were more of this place. I I don't know if Hodgson ever set any other stories in this imaginary part of Galway, but I hope someone in the audience knows and can direct us to them, because I definitely want more of this setting. I don't believe that he did. Uh, When I was doing research for this, it didn't really come up that he said a lot of stuff in Ireland. Uh, But we'll talk about maybe why this is set in Ireland in our discussion episode. And it's this being set in Ireland is... Led me to think of something. I mean, that I that I recall from my early uh, English student days in uh, Temple University. And one thing that really jumped out to me about this chapter is 
the low key anti Irish sentiment. I guess it used to be called racism, but since uh, um, the Irish people are, are white, we kind of don't use that term as much anymore. It's now anti Irish sentiment that we used to describe um, the really negative and even classically sort of racist attitudes that um, a lot of the European West and England had toward the Irish people. And this is present in the narrator's attitude. Uh, the narrator explains to Tonneson, his companion, um, he ex- explains his lack of desire to stay inside of a, an English cottage. And I want to I read this section of the story, uh, just, to, just two sentences here. Uh, as he put it, there was no joke in sleeping in a room with numerous family of healthy Irish in one corner and a pigsty in the other, while overhead a ragged colony of roosting fowls distributed their blessings impartially, and the whole place so full of peat smoke that it made a fellow sneeze his head off just to put it inside the doorway. And that's just an example, but the attitude continues throughout the chapter uh, to the way that they perceive the language of the Irish folks, which which you pointed out, Glenn, it's incomprehensible to them. Um, and it's a result of these people never leaving their, quote, isolated hamlets or, you know, coming into contact with the outside world. The setting then is really provincial and close to home to the British men who are on this fishing adventure, but it's also exotic and a little backwater, uh, a little backwards. And that's just to set up the things are really not as they should be here. And on on top of that, the two men are going to be leaving their things behind in their tent at their campsite. uh, And they wonder whether or not these, you know, backwater Irish folk are going to root through their things and take them. And these are really just kind of classic racist sentiments. These people are unclean. They might be thieves. They don't know what the world is like. They don't want to participate in real civilization. Uh, On the other hand, they're kind of good folk, good family folk. They have their tight-knit communities. Uh, And that kind of paradox of racism is really present here, or anti-Irish sentiment. This is not a major part of the story by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm pointing it out because it's an occasional feature of uh, 19th and early 20th century literature. And, And it's a kind of classic uh, sentiment that you can find by any writers who are a little bit uh, wary of people who are not like them or are not part of their kin group, uh, really throughout uh, English literature and American literature. You can find, for instance, the same sort of sentiments in early accounts of American settlers, interactions with the indigenous people of North America. You know, they're drunk, they're not civilized, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not presenting these attitudes for, you know, criticism of the story, uh, but more it's a feature of the narrator of this of this guy who finds the manuscript, uh, presenting himself and his companion as, as good British folk to the audience. And maybe they're even progressive on some level because they're ultimately trusting of the Irish people of this backwater community. They find value in them. The driver's a good person. And and it's a strange artifact I found of the, of the time the story was written. And I just felt I wanted to point that out because it really jumped out to me. Probably something we, sh- we should say too, you, you know, you pointed out how close the, the writing or at least the publishing of this novel is to Hodgson's death in the First World War in 1917. But it is also really quite close to the 
Easter uprising and then the the much broader uh, rebellion against British imperial British colonial rule that happens, uh, you know, succeeds, I guess, in, in attaining independence for at least the southern part of Ireland uh, in the early 1920s. Right, So we're, we're less than a decade away from that at the time that Hodgson is publishing this as well. And, and so Hodgson here in this book is describing the way that the imperialists from another country who control this country are regarding the people that they have conquered just a decade away from the moment when these people, or at least, you know, many of them are going to decide that they are sick enough of, of this imperialism, of being imperialized, that they're going to take violent action to get rid of people like the, like the characters we have in this, in this frame narrative. And I do want to say, I'll say right now that we have not actually met the narrator of the actual weird fiction tale that we're going to get. I am certain that that person also is not Irish, but is is English. And so, you know, we don't need to do much with that right now, but I think that's going to become interesting fodder when you raise this in the discussion episode of, if everyone in the story is English, why is this story even needing to be in Ireland at all? I have a pretty definitive answer for that, so I don't know if we'll be discussing okay. <laughs> it. I'll just answer the question in light of the, the whole uh, front matter of this story. Um, but I just want to say, regardless of all of that, which is really just an, an artifact of the story and the time it was written, uh, I think the fishing adventure works beautifully in the opening chapter. And when I was reading this the first time, I thought to myself, if the rest of the book goes on this way, it will be a true delight. But as you pointed out, Glenn, this is a frame narrative and, and Hodgin. And Hodgson isn't so interested in the hinterland adventure of these two men, but in the text that they discover in the ruined house. And, and Hodgson does do a great job of setting up the strangeness of the tale of the house on the borderland. He teases the presence of this desk in the collapsed ruin of the, of the house uh, in, into the pit. He, he, he talks about the wild gardens and all of these show up in the story and and rereading this opening is a real pleasure also i just like the prose in the opening maybe maybe more than the prose used in the rest of the story i guess what i'm trying to say is uh i i guess this whole manuscript could be submitted for the approval of the midnight society it's ultimately just a spooky campfire tale Right. I mean, and that's actually even just inherent in the frame. I didn't say so, but I mean, the, the first chapter involves these two characters reading this manuscript in their tent out in the back country at, at night, which I mean, that would be a boring thing to be filmed. That's why when we have, you know, scary campfire stories, it's, we get them in flashback, which is exactly what, what Hodgson is going to do here. So that was all chapter one. And uh, now I'm going to recap chapters two through four. I should say also, by the way, that the chapters have great titles themselves. Uh, we're not going to call that much attention to them as we're going through the recap anyway, but I do want to note that chapter two is called The Plane of Silence, uh, just to give you a, a taste of these uh, these chapter titles. But this chapter, chapter two, this begins the actual manuscript. It's the, the scary story flashback, I guess, eventually. Uh, <laughs> we don't get we don't get any more commentary from Hodgson himself. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm not sure how to understand the frame chapter as a material artifact in the this fictional world. I think that's also something we're going to want to talk about in the discussion episode. But in any case, we are now into the journal that the frame characters found among these weird ruins overlooking a bottomless abyss. The journaler, our, our narrator, is an old man who lives in this house, uh, the house that is going to become these ruins. And he starts by telling us about the house and about his living situation. He's not from around here, but when he retired, he bought this house for next to nothing, and the price was so low because it is rumored 
to be haunted. And Hodgson sets all of this up to be a ghost story, though it is going to be something quite different. But the narrator says, I am not superstitious, but I have ceased to deny that things happen in this house. And the local peasants do not talk to this guy because they think he is either mad or evil to have decided to live in this house that had been abandoned for so long. And so he has no servants either. So his only companions are his sister, who does the housekeeping, and his dog, Pepper. So that is the the setting of the story. And Hodgson only spends about one page on this before we get immediately to stuff happening. The narrator is sitting in his chair in his study when suddenly the candlelight turns red. It's it's blood red. And Pepper, uh, the dog, Pepper, gets really nervous. And this feels pretty ghost story here, right? But that is not what's going on at all. Instead, what happens next is that the narrator sees a strange light in the room, and then looking into it, he realizes that he can see into some other place, and then rather suddenly realizes that he is floating. And uh, also, he's in outer space now. So uh, he floats through outer space for a long time until he comes to a weird red star that is shaped like a a donut. It's It's a red ring. And then he descends to some planet with a a desolate mountain landscape where there is a great basin that looks like an arena. In the center of that arena is a replica of his own house, but it is an order of magnitude larger, uh, and it seems weirder to him as well. Uh, Also, there is some kind of strange creature trying to get into it. It's uh, uh, something that looks like a a cross between a pig and a, a human. But then he floats away from this planet and eventually comes back to Earth, where he finds himself back in his study. He's really, really hungry. Uh, The clock shows that it's been almost 24 hours since he was last here. And of course, he wonders what happened to him. Uh, You know, did this really happen? Did he fall asleep and just dream this? Uh, You know, what's up with this house I've moved into? It's a a crazy opening to this story. It really is. I mean, the first thing you mentioned in recapping this section is the, the chapter titles. And there are a few chapters in the book that uh, cynically, I, I thought about renaming. And, and and much of this book is given over to these really lush description of these visions. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's a major feature of this manuscript. So maybe I'll, I'll sprinkle in some alternate chapter titles throughout the recap, depending on how, how I'm feeling when we get to those sections. Uh, but, but the old man here is the recluse, as I'll refer to him as a fairly regularly, but he's also just the old man or, or whatever. He's a pretty cantankerous guy. He says he doesn't have servants because he hates them. And that's kind of our introduction to this guy's character, his self-admission that he hates servants. And this is, to me, a strange note to add to a diary. But I do want to point, point out that I find the reclusive old man to be a pretty selfish and and self-serving individual. And and while he may not be evil in a mustache-twirling sort of way, maybe he's evil in a kind of banal way. And and I think that that's a a really important feature of this manuscript, is is this guy's kind of blind to his own... um, selfishness. He's, he's a deeply selfish person. Uh, for instance, when he talks about superstition, which strange things are going on here, he views other people's superstitions as something that he can bend to his benefit. Like, he, he got the house cheap because people believe the devil built it. And he's had a good 10 years in this house uh, before the candles burn green and red and, and send him on an astral journey or maybe a cosmic journey or maybe a, a combination of both. And I, I, I think the green and red imagery is pretty important here, particularly the green color. 
Um, and uh, it's also January, so it's just after Christmas. And, and, you know, I was thinking this might be a nice Christmas story, but this whole manuscript kind of takes place <laughs> over the course of, of nearly a year. What, one thing that fascinates me about these early science fiction and weird fiction stories, I, su- I suppose, is a, the, the attempts of the writers to perceive a picture of Earth from the stars. And, and now we're all familiar with, you know, famous pictures taken of the Earth from the moon and uh, from satellites and all this sort of stuff. But once the heavens became de- demystified by ongoing science, discoveries, the, the imaginative aspect of seeing Earth from beyond Earth's borders kind of went away and, and fiction took, uh, science fiction took a really different turn. And, and Hodgson is still in this phase where people are imagining what it's like to see Earth beyond Earth as the, the universe has become this totally different uh, conceptual thing than it was, you know, 100 years prior, 200 years prior to, to the writing of this story. Uh, the universe is a material thing in this novel, though the Recluse still refers to ether, which I'm taking to mean luminiferous ether or the medium through which light travels. And this story is being written around the same time that Einstein is is challenging the idea of the luminiferous ether. Um, and we now think that that's an absurd idea. But this theory uh, that, that the luminous, luminiferous ether was a real thing was not completely discarded until the turn of the 20th century. So Hodgson would have perhaps learned about this kind of mode of communication about what the universe is made of in his own science courses that he he took or read about. He's largely self, self-educated. He dropped out of school when he was 14. And that's just always fascinating to me to come across that in, in these types of stories. And Hodgson himself may not be still holding on to that cosmology in 1908 or, you know, 1906 or, or so, whenever he would have actually written this novel. But this this part of the narrative, the, the, the journal, is from 30 years before that. And so it is the cosmology that every educated Englishman would have had, right? So there's actually maybe even a bit of historicizing that Hodgson is doing by emphasizing that here as well. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I want to talk now a little bit about the, the the plane of silence. A lot of these names are are broadly poetic or metaphorical in some way, and I think the plane of silence is meant to refer to the place that the recluse travels to. And one thing he finds in this place. On the peaks of the mountains that surround the arena are massive sculptures of gods, uh, including Kali and Set. And the recluse refers to Kali as the Hindu goddess of death and Set as the destroyer of souls, uh, which is interesting that that's kind of what jumps out to this narr- the, the, the recluse as he's looking at these massive series of statues of all mythological deities and and some he recognizes some of them he doesn't and he's led to wonder if there's something to the old heathen worship something more than the mere deifying of men and animals and elements so he encounters some really strange i think kind of classic cosmic horror stuff here in this scene and i and i mentioned this so we can keep it in mind Uh, we're going to have to deal with what these recluses visions are in the discussion 
That bit is really subtle here, actually. The, this this idea that, hey, maybe the gods of the ancient people were not just mere superstitions or mere fantasies, mere tales that people were telling about things they were observing in nature, but also that those gods are not really gods, but yet, nonetheless, they're real. And what they actually are, are space monsters or space aliens of some sort, right? I mean, this is a huge part of what people think of as the Cthulhu mythos. And here it is in this story, uh, but quite subtle in this scene. Right. And, and it's really just one paragraph. Uh, and the rest of the visions, uh, which we'll see later in the story, go a completely different route uh, than this. And so uh, it's an incongruity, I think, in, in some sense in this story. Uh, you mentioned the pink, you mentioned the pig thing, uh, that's going to come back. This, this one though, is the thing in the arena, which is kind of this proto pig thing. Um, but I really hope that, that you like the pig things as a narrative element because they're going to come back. Um, and, and I just have one last thing to say about this section, uh, about the narrator's return to earth, uh, which is that he is a little fixated on the working of time and his mechanical clock. He has to gather himself and, and reassociate himself with the rational machinations of the clock that he likely hasn't. He has to convince himself that he like hasn't traveled backwards in time. And though he's disoriented, um, it, it kind of makes sense like that. Maybe he thinks he did travel back before he had this vision. It's plausible. But the clockwork imagery is really important to this story. And uh, I just want to get narrative closure on the fact that his sister is living in this house with him. And he's like, well, what happened? And she's like, whatever, you were in your study again. Like her (laughs) role in this story is very strange to me. Um, But we'll, we'll, I think it's a vital role and and we'll, we'll talk more about what she's doing in the discussion. Yeah. It's not clear that she's living the best possible version of her life. And uh, I think it will be fun in the discussion to to see what this story looks like from her perspective. I think that's exactly be- what we'll be doing. You read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. And you're right. I'm glad you point out that that the, the narrator or the, the recluse, which I think is a good thing to call him, is really obsessed with time in this story. And some of it's just the clock imagery, always telling us what time it is, but also always noting how much time has passed since the last entry. And we're going to get that uh, next here. So let's do chapters five through seven. Now, I think we could call these the attack narrative or maybe something like the tale of the home invasion. Uh, You wanted to rewrite the chapter chapter titles, Brandon. I want to like subdivide this into sections and give them chapters. I don't know. That might be a fun document. We'll be doing that in the discussion. (laughs) We'll we'll look at the structure of the story. Uh, But yeah, I call this the siege narrative, but we all have our own names for what these sections are. (laughs) Right. Well, in any case, several months have passed from what the the narrator calls his vision, uh, though he also is not sure that this this arena, this is red donut star. He's not sure that all of that was not actually a real experience, but he does call it his vision. And so it's been several months. The story returns now to his house. Uh, there is a large and deep ravine on his property. It's a ravine that the peasants call the pit. And this has a river running through it. Uh, but otherwise, this river uh, is actually subterranean everywhere else in this region. Uh, we've actually encountered this in the, the frame chapter already. And the, the narrator and Pepper are out walking when some rocks on the wall of the pit fall off and splash down into the river. And Pepper really freaks out about this and starts growling 
at something. And when they go down to investigate, Pepper runs into some brush and then returns with a wound on its side uh, from a a claw. Uh, And of course, what's going on is that hiding out in this gorge is a pig person, very much like the one that the narrator saw in his vision, which he discovers only later that day once he and Pepper are home and recovering. He actually sees the creature out his window. And so now a whole week passes with nothing weird going on, and then it does actually get really weird. So the the recluse and his sister are outside in their yard when there is a big rumbling crash from the direction of the pit. More rocks have fallen, and, and this time it is a lot of them. And this time there are three pig people. Uh, we should probably actually start calling them swine things, which is the name of this chapter <laughs> and is the name that we're going to use throughout. Uh, and it seems clear that these monsters are getting into the pit by digging their way out from some subterranean place. Uh, we're going to get more on that later. But right now, there is a big chase scene when the swine things come after the recluse and his sister, and everyone has to run into the house. And one of these swine things even gets a, a grubby hand, paw, hoof thing on the recluse's shoulder. Uh, but in the end, everyone makes it in just fine. Uh, they lock up the house so that the swine things can't get in, uh, but they are still trying to get in, should be clear. And, and even when they go away, the recluse expects that they're going to be back. And of course, he's right. But in the meantime, he prepares for a home invasion. And he is really here just acting like Macaulay Culkin at Christmas. I mean, there's a lot <laughs> of detail about the traps he's setting and so on. Uh, and the attack comes. Uh, there's some really great, really creepy tension building up to all of this. And the narrator drives the swine things off by shooting at them from his roof, uh, though he is also aided by part of the, the crenellation up top. I guess this house is kind of a, a castle. So he's he's aided by part of the crenellation falling off and killing some of the swine things uh, and then scaring the rest of them off. And well, I have just recapped all of this in like four sentences. This is a dense chapter. It is also genuinely terrifying in parts. I actually think this is one of the scariest stories that we've done on Elder Sign so far. Well, it's certainly tense in moments. I'll give you that. And it is it is a great siege narrative. I'll say in terms of horror, this type of like home invasion thriller or siege narrative, it's, it's not something that I really go to for uh, a scary story when I want to read horror. I found a few pretty effective ones in, in my life, like the film You're Next, which I think is pretty great. That involves animal masks. And it, it kind of made me wonder how many home invasion horror thrillers involve animal masks, which, of course, in this story, the pigmen aren't wearing masks, the swine things. They're like unnatural creatures. But I think the uncanniness is really what works in this type of narrative anyway. John Carpenter, of course, had made two great siege movies, Assault on Precinct 13, which is mundane. There's like no magic in it. This plot was borrowed for an okay supernatural episode. Uh, And then there's also Prince of Darkness, which is uh, more magical. It's like this uh, Satan juice is bottled in the bottom of a church. I don't know. People turn into zombies. Alice Cooper's there. Uh, It's it's a movie. Uh, But all this is really just to say that, uh, that I'm not sure if we have an example prior to House on the Borderlands of a, of a supernatural siege story. So I, I think it's likely, or maybe I just like to think that all of these filmmakers and storytellers have borrowed from it, the kind of elements of uncanniness, the fear of being at home and um, your home being invaded by, by somebody whose purposes you can't quite discern. Uh, this is all present here in this section of the story. 
Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. I had not noted that. That's a really great observation. I guess Dracula, which is that 1894, I think Dracula is. So, you know, about a decade before Hodgson wrote this, doesn't have this level of weird, scary creature trying to get in the house, but does have a, hey, we've got to do weird, crazy things to keep Dracula out, like hang up garlic and and, uh, do some incantations and stuff. Uh, But yeah, I think you're probably right that this might actually be the the genesis of an entire subgenre of of scary stories. Yeah, I mean, Hodgson is is great for that. He really was a a very clever and and, uh, innovative writer in a lot of avenues, I think. At least I found that to be the case in, in reading him. There's not too much more I want to add to this section, but from the perspective of a critique, I feel like the siege section of the story is disconnected from the rest of the narrative. Uh, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about technically why I think that's the case in the discussion. But a, as a reader, I'll also say to expose my own bias, I feel more drawn to the metaphysical elements of this narrative than the than the home invasion portion of the story. Um but I still feel like that there ought to be a deeper connection between this uh, narrative and the the metaphysical stuff. And, and maybe we'll try to make those connections in the discussion if we can. I, I do think Hodgson does mightily try to connect the invasion of the pigmen to the larger narrative. Uh, you know, the recluse, the narrator of the found manuscript, makes the connection between the thing in the arena in the plane of silence, trying to detest the defenses of the Emerald House. We didn't talk about the green there, but the house that is kind of the looking glass version of the recluse's house is is emerald. It's green. It's a, it's a you know, sparkling, beautiful green. Um, he does try to make the connection between that, you know, testing of the defenses to what's happening with the swine things in his own life. Um, and in fact, this vision does have some sort of odd connection to what is happening in reality. You know, but it leads to questions like, has the recluse been gifted some sort of preternatural preternatural foresight? Uh, is the narrator peering into some sort of ideal realm where cause and effect are reversed or ignored or there's uh, a different connection, non-causal entirely? And, and I wonder how much Hodgson is really asking the reader to make a connection between these two worlds or if he's more trying to connect the swine things attack to the larger narrative. And I, I'm really split myself on what the answer might be. And this is going to be a, a really fruitful discussion, uh, part of the narrative. And may, maybe the very answer is very obvious and I just can't see it clearly. Well, I'm glad that you have laid your cards on the table here about preferring the metaphysical part of this book to this segment that we're in now, because I'm the complete opposite. I love this segment (laughs) and the other part I don't hate, I don't dislike, but this is the part of the book that I always remember. It's what really appeals to me. I love home defense stories. I don't love them so much when they're about psychos who want to come in and murder you. I I tend to prefer them when they're about Joe Pesci trying to get in and his uh, his companion wanting to turn on all your water faucets. (laughs) Um, I cannot promise that. That's going to be the last uh, the, the, the last uh, Home Alone joke I make, but I will try to curtail it. But I do love the movie Home Alone. And I, I don't know, this is a lot of what I think about when I'm uh, brewing my coffee in the mornings and looking out the window and thinking, <laughs> oh, that would be a good spot for a for a pit. You know, yeah, a I don't have nearly pit. enough Christmas ornaments. How am I going to defend my home? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I spent a lot of time thinking about stuff like that just for just for my own amusement and not just at home, but like any building I've ever worked in. I, I, I love 
love it. So I love that part of this, like where we get to know about this house and think of the ways that he's defending it. And also, you know, the house itself is really pretty cool because it's it's going to get weird. Yeah, it is. It is going to get much weirder. But there, before we move on, I, I just want to highlight Mary's response to the initial swine thing attack. Ba- basically, she freaks out because her brother is running at her, telling her to run for her life. And she's old. I mean, they're both old, I think, here. Maybe in their 60s, maybe older, uh, which maybe doesn't seem that old. But I think they're supposed to just I don't know, be represented as being kind of older. Um, So she's old and she passes out and then she's in bed for the duration of the siege. This is important, I I suppose, because Mary's really going to be our sanity check throughout the rest of this narrative. Um, And and as we said, her perspective is something we're going to take up in the discussion. Right. That's an extremely important detail that her experience of this is all mediated through the the narrator, through her her brother, the the recluse. And I, I am really looking forward to trying to ascertain or trying to understand this this story from her perspective. Uh, let's do the the next uh, next chunk of this story, which is uh, chapters eight through eleven. These are actually going to serve as a bridge between the two halves of the the novel. We'll have more on on what those are later. But the uh, uh, the sun comes up and it appears that the swine thing are gone and and really, really gone because the recluse now can't even see the dead body of the one that was killed by the stone that fell from the house. And so he retreats to his study and then he later wakes up with a a start. He's he's startled and he discovers that it is now three in the afternoon and he'd, he'd fallen asleep in his chair in the study. And in the hallway, he finds Mary, his sister, walking quietly uh, and also trying to open up the back door, which he had super duper locked against the swine things. And he grabs her arm and he berates her for thinking that the danger is over. And he pleads with her to just stay in the house for a few more days until they know for sure that the danger is gone. But she's trembling and she's gasping and sobbing. And so in the end, he just picks her up and carries her to her room. And then he locks her in there. Uh, Pepper is there in that room too, by the way, because Mary has been caring for him since the incident at the pit where he got the wound in his side. But I'll say that this is all a little disturbing, but the the narrator presents it as if he's being rational and cautious and protective. Uh, So we're going to, and we're going to come back to this dichotomy here, this juxtaposition a few more times. Uh, But this chapter ends with the the narrator returning to the roof for the night, prepared for a second attack, though that attack never actually comes. And when it seems pretty clear that there is not going to be any full-on assault to the house from the area of the pit, the narrator decides to go down and check the cellars in case the swine things are trying to sneak in that way. Uh, Though, you know, before he gets down there, you know, on his way downstairs, he does stop in the study for a glass of brandy, which is, you know, that's just good sense. That's what anyone should do. Now, we should be clear that he does not want to go into the cellars because the cellars are scary. Uh, Here's how he describes them. I love this description. Of all the great, awe-inspiring rooms in this house, the cellars are the hugest and weirdest. Great, gloomy caverns of places, unlit by any ray of daylight. But still, he does keep his wine down here, uh, though he does keep the wine as close to the door as possible, but he does use the cellar. And the center of the cellars is a large room with gothic arches. It's got strange and fantastic carvings all over it. Uh, it seems to me these carvings might be important, but I guess that is because I have read some weird fiction before and, you know, the recluse <laughs> has not. Uh, so it's actually just here as a descriptive detail. And then we just leave it behind. But what really matters down here is that the stone floor has a door in it that the narrator has never noticed before. I mean, he hasn't been here that much, but he's never noticed it before. 
He opens it up, and there's just a gaping black hole. He can't see the bottom of wherever this is. There are no stairs. There's no sign that there ever have been any stairs. And as he is looking into this blackness, uh, he hears, or at least maybe thinks he hears, a soft tittering that grows into a hideous chuckling, faint and distant. And to his credit, the recluse does not immediately know out of there, which is definitely what I would do. But he he just calmly closes the door. Then he puts a bunch of heavy stones on it just to be safe. Uh, and this is really one of the moments where this, to me, was a genuinely scary part of this story. Though I think, Brandon, maybe you didn't have that type of reaction to it. But this kept me up all night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this really reminded me of some of the most evocative parts of the uh, house of leaves. And so that, that's what I was thinking of as I was reading this is like, give me more. The basement is bigger on the inside uh, <laughs> house exploration scenes. You know, I did. I actually really loved the, uh, the exploration of the basement. I thought it was very, very scary and evocative and atmospheric and well done. All right. Well, it is daytime again now. And so the the recluse goes back upstairs to check on Mary and Pepper. Mary seems more herself now, which I I think actually just means calmer, Uh, though she does really inspect her brother's face. Like she's trying to read him. She's trying to understand what's going on with him. But she politely asks if, you know, she could maybe go to the kitchen and make breakfast. Uh, But what she does not say here is because you locked me in here without any dinner last night and I'm really freaking hungry. Right. Uh, (laughs) So she goes off to make breakfast while The recluse stays here to check on Pepper. Uh, Pepper's recovering nicely. But what really matters here is that when Mary comes back with the breakfast for them, the recluse uh, tries to reassure her that things are going to be all right. Uh, And I do think we need to just get a paragraph here of the the narrative, uh, both to, to give a sense of what it's like and also because it's going to be important to the question of whether or not the swine things are real. So here's what Hudson writes. She looked at me in a curiously puzzled manner, as though not comprehending. Then, intelligence swept into her eyes, and fear, but she said nothing beyond an unintelligible murmur of acquiescence. After that, I kept silence. It was evident that any reference to the swine things was more than her shaken nerves could bear. So, the the deal here is that they are pointedly not talking about the attack of the swine things, and the narrator is not sure if Mary is just in denial, or if she never really saw them on the day of the attack and for some reason still believes his really stupid cover story about how Pepper was attacked by a cat. Or, you know, she might just be worried that he's going all Jack Torrance, but that has not occurred to him, right? Because maybe he really is going all Jack Torrance. We're going to have to talk about that. Uh, We get some more of that in the next chapter as well when he ventures out onto the property and inspects the, the coping stone that fell off the tower. The stone really is here in the yard, but there is absolutely no sign of the swine thing that it crushed. There's not even any blood or hair or anything. Now, the narrator keeps going. He, he continues on to the pit now, and he's got Pepper with him, I should say. And he sees that part of the side of the pit has fallen away, and there's this really big cave opening there now. And he doesn't explore this. He just notes it and then goes back home for dinner. But the next chapter, chapter 12, is called The Subterranean Pit. So we know that we're going in soon. That's going to mark the transition to the second half of this story, the the sort of exploration or maybe what we might call the metaphysical part of the story. Right. I mean, I want to point out here that these chapters that you just uh, recapped are taking place nine days in, in, you know, 
a period of nine days immediately following the aftermath of the attack. And in these nine days, the recluse is in a constant state of like hyper arousal and fear. Eventually, he returns to the outside world, but he is clearly shaken by these events. And by outside world, I mean he goes outside of his house, not like he goes <laughs> to the village. But what really strikes me uh, about these chapters, apart from the wonderful basement exploration scene that, that we that we talked about, is the focus on Mary's experience, uh, which you which you recapped beautifully. Hodgson, through the narration of the recluse, is inviting us to question what is really going on through Mary's behaviors and reactions to her brother. Chapter 8 is, a ti- is entitled After the Attack. This is one chapter that I might have renamed to more accurately capture what the content of the chapter is about. <laughs> uh, my first draft of the new name is, uh, new chapter name is, uh, if Mary wants to avoid me and sneak around, then fine. She can stay in her room. For her own good, of course. Uh, but Mary treats her brother like he's cracked after 10 years of isolation in this strange world that sits atop what I think might otherwise in any other story uh, be considered a fairy circle. Uh, and, and fairies are invoked once at the end of this narrative. But, you know, anytime you see like a, a big circle in especially English literature, you have to think fairies. I don't really think of this as a fairy tale, but I think Hodgson is playing with some of that imagery. There are some objective facts uh, that I want to point out that lead that lend credence to the reality of uh, the attack by the swine things. You know, we, we just talked about Mary's uh, perspective, which might lead us to believe that they didn't really happen, but there, there are objective facts. For instance, some, some windows are broken, Actually, that's all there is. That's all the evidence we get. There are some broken windows. None of the bodies remain. There are no bloodstains anywhere. There's other damage to the house that the recluse explains that he's done himself, like breaking a gutter. Um, but in any event, at this point, the recluse really thinks he's in the in the clear in terms of the swine things coming back. But I don't, I don't know. I think my reaction would be, even given how much I might enjoy some solitude, uh, if I were the recluse, I might say, like, let's move to a townhouse. Like, let's move to the village. And the way, the fact that the recluse doesn't really consider this leads me to wonder, like, what is his history? We have no sense of what this guy's life was prior to the event of the story. 10 years ago, all we know is that 10 years ago, he took his sister with him to an abandoned country estate and fixed it up. But but why did he do it? Why did he leave civilization? His sister had no prospects, I suppose, in terms of marriage. And this gives the story, when you think about it in these terms, a very gothic feel. Like, what was the past ruination that led to this weird self-isolation with a sibling, which is, you know, gothic literature 101. Right. I mean, this actually bears a kind of weird resemblance to the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Fall of the House of Usher, right? There's some real, they have some real motifs in common for sure. I was wondering this too, like, what is the backstory of these characters? And there definitely is a sense of of the gothic here, of the, the, the siblings who maybe inherited some wealth and not much of it is left. So they've had to relocate to live somewhere more cheaply than wherever it was they were living before before. Uh, there's definitely some miserliness on behalf of the, the narrator. He seemed, I mean, you know, he's, he's certainly a misanthrope. He does not like people, other people very much. And he also seems really stingy, right? I mean, these are the, really the first things we learn about him on the first page. He hates servants and he's 
cheap. He's interested in this property, moves here simply because it's cheap. And that might be because of a squandered family fortune. There might be other circumstances going on here. Maybe that's something we should do in the discussion episode is try to piece together the backstory of this family because Hodgson is never really going to give it to us. No, he's not. Well, the next section picks up in the aftermath of the attack, and, and this is going to be the first forays into exploration mode. Uh, these come in, in chapters 12 and 13, and then something really unexpected happens in chapter 14. Uh, chapter 12, which is the, the subterranean pit, this is actually one of the longest chapters in the book. It's uh, twice as long as many of the other chapters. But even with that, it is actually pretty easy to recap quickly, at least if all I'm trying to do is hit the, the plot points, because this is also one of the scariest chapters in the book so far, though I'll let Brandon talk about the, the, the elements there, the descriptive elements in, in just a moment. So the, the narrator returns to the big cave in the pit, and he goes in. Uh, he's got Pepper with him again, I should say. It goes on, this, this cave, it goes on for a long way, and then he encounters a massive opening in the floor. It's a, a pit that doesn't seem to have a bottom, and also from which maybe he's hearing weird sounds, or maybe he's just hearing the echoes of his own sounds. That's unclear to him. But he continues on the cave path, and he realizes that it just loops around this big pit, and he surmises that this pit is where the swine things came from. But... It's time to go because the cave is flooding and much of this chapter is actually the adventure of getting out of the cave with Pepper while water is pouring in. It's really quite harrowing and it is a very close call, though in the end, both narrator and dog make it out. So the whole thing is flooded now, both this subterranean pit and the, the ravine that he's been calling the pit with, uh, you know, a, a, as a proper now with a capital letter. Uh, I have not been doing a good job of distinguishing them, uh, but it's all just a lake now. And this is really great because it probably means no more swine things. But the narrator is disappointed that he didn't get to explore this subterranean hole. But hey, then he remembers about the trap door in the cellar that opened onto a space that also didn't seem to have a bottom. And sure enough, when he opens it now, there's water. Uh, it turns out that the trap door in the cellar is centered directly over this subterranean hole. And since this great cellar with its arches and its creepy writing on the walls is the center of the house, it means that the house was built to align with the subterranean pit and also to have access to it. Uh, so maybe there is something to the rumors of the peasants after all. Uh, and maybe we should start thinking of this as a, a hellmouth. I know you said fairy story, Brandon, but uh, hellmouth might be really what we need here. <laughs> uh, so this chapter ends with the narrator explaining that even though he walked away from this discovery and, and just went and made a sandwich or something, uh, he feels a compulsion to go down and just gaze at the water. And he suspects that there is something numinous about that compulsion. And the chapter ends with, with this paragraph that I, I just want to read. One thought there is, in closing, that impresses itself upon me with ever-growing insistence. It is that I live in a very strange house, a very awful house, and I have begun to wonder whether I am doing wisely in staying here. Yet, if I left, where could I go and still obtain the solitude and the sense of her presence that alone makes my life bearable? And so, of course, we immediately are sitting up straight and shouting into the ether, who is her and why haven't we heard anything about this before? And the fictitious editor of all of this, you know, Hodson, uh, even has a footnote here calling our attention to it, though uh, it struck me as heavy handed. I wish it weren't there, but uh, we can talk more about that later. So we move on now to what is, I think at least, the weirdest chapter that we've had so far. And this picks up with the question of who is her? Obviously, it's a former romantic partner of some sort, though we don't know if she was a wife or just a crush or something in between, but she's dead. 
So one night, the narrator is staying up late in his study, and again, he finds himself traveling to a strange place without actually having to bother getting up out of his chair. But this time, instead of staring into the fire and then finding himself in outer space, now it's the room itself that gets blurry and and fades away, and he finds himself at the shore of a strange sea with black cliffs. Floating out over the ocean is his lost love, and he runs to her, and they speak, and she tells him that his house is evil, so also is this sea, which she calls the Sea of Sleep, and she tells him that he should get out. But he loves seeing her, he loves speaking with her, and he knows that he'll not be able to see her anywhere else except here. And he wants to be able to keep having this experience. Uh, And then we get an editorial intrusion here to explain that the manuscript is damaged at this point, but there's a a fragmented description of his return to the normal world. And once again, this is a, a voyage through outer space. And this chapter does not properly end because of the, the damage to the manuscript, but we will pick up again at the house in the next chapter. So this was a really strange direction to go here. I was not expecting this. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to start here in uh, my th- thoughts about this section um, before I talk about the exploration of the cave, cave system <laughs> beneath the house and adjacent to the house. But the important thing, though, about the Sea of Sleep is that this is where the narrator can visit his ex-lover who is dead, and she can only visit him at the Sea of Sleep, and he only can only get to the Sea of Sleep because of that the house that he's in. Um, it's, it doesn't seem great that you can uh, go visit dead people in uh, by falling asleep in your study, uh, <laughs> and the only reason you can do that is because you live on top of a hell mouth. I mean, th- this to me suggests the kind of extreme selfishness or the um, self-interest motivation above all else of the narrator, of the recluse, uh, a suggestion that maybe he's a little a little evil in in the banal sense that I said uh, I mentioned before. The really important thing, though, is that we now have some character motivation for the recluse. He's left society because the woman he loved has died. He's lost her. So he's been living in solitude with his sister and his dog for a decade because of love lost. And and that's the way he likes it. He just likes to think about his ex-lover. And he, he likes thinking about her and being with her so much that he ignores her pleas with him to leave the house because if he stays there, he gets to see her again. And, and that's a rough position to be in, I think. I mean, this is a really catastrophic love affair that this guy has engaged with. Basically, though, this section here changes the recluse's goals from merely staying alive to finding ways to get back to the sea of sleep. And so what little we get of character motivation or character goals is found in this transitional chapter. Yeah, this is really interesting, right? Because the actual action, like the scary, weird action of the story is over at this point. And so this type of story should end with the recluse and his sister and his dog having survived this weird assault and then saying, you know what, we're going to leave. And then, you know, we get a sort of postscript where the house is abandoned again. And and maybe we even see it's, it's 20 years later and the next chump has bought the house and it's all about to start over again, right? That's a complete story. But now we're going to start having this different story. And so we need to have a a motive for the narrator not to get the heck out of here, which is what, you know, most of us would do. And I'm I'm really glad to point out the selfishness of this. There there are two things going on here, both, you know, the both about the recluse's uh, treatment of of 
the women in his life. One is he makes this decision without regard for or informing or talking with Mary, his sister, about it. But he's endangering her to to have this. And then also the the love that he feels for this long-lost woman is not a desire to be in a partnership, an equal partnership with her, and that where in which he would actually listen to her wishes and perhaps adhere to them or at least discuss them with her. <laughs> it's a possessive type of love, right? And so we are seeing a real selfishness here where this character really only thinks about himself and in fact does not occur to him to think about anything else, right? It's not actually like an active choice he's making. It's just the way he is. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a crucial part of understanding just who this recluse is, what type of person he is, um, such that he might even be attracted to a evil place in the first place. Um, but uh, all right, th- that's out of the way here. Let's return to the exploration of yeah. the pit slash cave slash ravine and the, and the basement trap door. You pointed out, Glenn, that the exploration scene here is uh, among the scariest portions of the book. I think that's totally fair. It's great. I I read this uh, more as a bit of uh, survival horror about a man and his dog, Uh, a great type of story. It would make a great sort of video game, you know, a short indie game, uh, survival horror game, I think. Everything that the man encounters in this cave is the result of echoes, Um, the thing he thinks he hears, you know, the weird sounds are ultimately the echoes of either himself or Pepper, his dog. And, and there's a lot of like goosebumps, uh, twist endings, uh, or like cliffhangers in the <laughs> section where he's like, what is that? And then he's like, never mind. It's an echo. It's just me. Um, but Pepper is a great character in this book. Uh, the dog is a real loyal companion. It joins the recluse. And, and this frightens the man. It joins the recluse in the cave. Um, and this frightens the recluse because he thought he'd left his dog atop the edge of the, of the pit, not the subterranean pit, the like ravine. Um, and so Pepper's just super loyal and a super good dog. And after the dog joins him, the recluse tries to get his bearings and he gets lost and he keeps on winding up again and again in the room with the subterranean pit. And this is a different kind of echo of experience. I mean, we're really doubling a lot of what's going on. He, he climbs down into the ravine and then he can't escape this room with the subterranean pit. He can't get his bearings. And I think that this doubling of experience or echoing um, this kind of numinous return of, uh, of something material and real is important though an undeveloped idea that Hodgson is trying to engage with as he's writing this book. I don't think he's mastered his theme here. Um, In any event, the flooded pit leads the recluse to the basement trap door, as we talked about, which the recluse realizes connected with the flooded cave system to the house. And and we, we covered all this really well, but I will just say that his escape from the flooding cave is awesome it makes me love Pepper, and it's a harrowing tale, and it would be a terrible experience to live through, especially if you've just lived through a house being uh, besieged by swine things. Uh, but I will say that the, the important bit in these chapters of exploration, is, as you've referred to them, Glenn, is the recluse's admission that he feels drawn, uh, almost without a, a sense of control, to stare 
into the abyss of the new river beneath the house. And this compulsion, this lack of volition that the narrator believes is coming from outside of him really returns in a very dark way at the end of the narrative. So, so this is kind of a bit of a foreshadowing that we get here. Well, you're absolutely right that this would make an awesome adventure video game or, or horror adventure video game. I think that is definitely one of the things that is going on in this novel is that Hudson has really maybe sketched out like something like a dozen different stories, a dozen different ideas that could be their own complete stories. And I think you're also right to be pointing to many of the, or at least alluding to many of the writers who who picked up these cues and did flesh out these these prompts and, and write their own stories tugging on these threads. But it is all jam-packed here in this one story. And in fact, we are in now for another turn to something else, right? We're now at the part of the book where this book, I think, gets really strange. And not strange necessarily in its content, but strange in that it maybe doesn't quite seem like the same book that we were reading 30 pages previously. And this part of the book takes up a lot of pages, we should say, but most of it is a thick description. Most of it's quite beautiful descriptions, but it does mean that we can move through the plot points of the the next eight chapters pretty quickly. So chapter 15 picks up with the recluse back in the study late at night. uh, He's reading the Bible. There's some kind of weird tremor, and then there's a strange noise, and then time starts moving forward quite rapidly. And he observes this both by looking out the window and watching a whole day pass in the course of just a few minutes, but also by observing the hands on his mechanical clock moving rapidly. And the the pace of time is increasing, so that by the end of this chapter, days are just passing in seconds. Also, we should say that Pepper never woke up at the, the tremor and the noise. And so not long into this scene, Pepper dies. Pepper crumbles to dust. Uh, and this is also happening with material objects as well as time races forward. So the, the the next several chapters all occur in this accelerated time, this uh, race into the far future that is, for some reason, not materially affecting the recluse. And while there are a lot of interesting observations, there's also some really gorgeous prose. I'm going to let Brandon point those things out in his commentary. I'm just going to try to hit the the main idea or two of each chapter for a, a little while. Uh, it'll be a lot, but I think this will keep our episode here from getting out of hand. I'm actually afraid to glance <laughs> at the timer right now. So the the narrator surmises that he is millions of years in the future now. He also surmises that one of the piles of dust in the study might actually be his body, that he's a ghost of sorts somehow. Uh, He also does marvel that the house itself is still standing, even as the objects within it have long ago crumbled to dust, uh, and some parts of the house are actually beginning to decay too. Uh, But obviously something is up with the house. The sun dims and eventually burns out. Uh, The moon has gotten farther away from Earth as well. Everything is just dark for a while, but then a green star appears in the sky. Uh, At first, it's very far away, and then closer and closer until it replaces the sun. Uh, And it's much larger than the sun ever was, but the light is green, and the the dead sun, our sun, it's dead. It's still there. It, It is now, I guess... I guess it is now actually orbiting this new green sun. Uh, and new sun is what we ought to call it, I, I, I guess. Uh, so uh, the, the narrator is just hanging out at the house. He's watching this new green sun when he hears some swine things. Uh, naturally, he jumps out a window and runs. And when he looks back, there are swine things crawling all over the outside of the house. So that's weird. 
Uh, but then he starts floating up into the sky and into space again, and he gets a real good look at the green sun, and he wonders if this is the center of the universe, and that what has happened is that the solar system was always gradually falling into the gravity well of the center of the universe, but now he's experienced that at an accelerated rate. Up in space, he encounters some weird glowing spheres, they seem to have faces in them, and he has no control over what is happening to him, and he goes into one of them, and he finds himself back at the, the Sea of Sleep, and back hanging out with his dead former love, and it, it's awesome. But it can't last. It turns out that she has to go, and the narrator, the, the recluse, notices, or, or maybe discovers, or, or really maybe just speculates, that the green star is a binary star, and that its twin is a dark star. So now the narrator is back in space. Then he's drawn into a red sphere. It turns out to be the plane of silence where he saw the gigantic emerald version of his own house, uh, also his very first swine thing, all the way back at the beginning of the book. And it occurs to him finally that maybe the two houses are connected somehow. And then uh, there's a mystical white doorway. He goes into it. And that's the end of this chapter. It's also the end of the, the section of the, the narrative, the section of the recap here. We'll be back at this house when we pick up again. But there's a lot that just went on. Yeah, I want to comment again that, it, you know, if our audience has forgotten. It's been a while. That, and you mentioned it, Glenn, that the house in the Plain of Silence is emerald green. And we're really treated to a buffet of green imagery in this section of the story. The green sun that seems also to be the core intelligence of the universe, not merely a star that's drawing all consciousness to it somehow. I mean, in, in video game terms, we'd say that the recluse is, you know, on rails, meaning that he's not super in control of his actions and he's just being led to a conclusion without much say or without really an ability to control any of the environment around him. He's become a being of pure consciousness, but it's technically unable to affect anything, which is unlike a, a god. It's very strange. And I think it's going to take some real architectural work to understand what's going on in this section. And I don't think this is the best place to do it or if we should engage with it more deeply when we when we go through the structure of this novel in our discussion, that's probably what we're going to do. So I'm just going to hit a few notes that will aid us in the discussion that we get there to keep this episode at a reasonable length. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, what we get is a return of the clock imagery. It's how focus the recluse is on the sound of the clock and the passing of time. His first indication that time is moving rapidly is the motion of the clock hands. And, and eventually, the recluse experiences the heat death of the universe or something like it. And he refers to the universe as a mechanical clock winding down. Uh, so what we have here is a material mechanistic universe posited in this narrative. This is the real deal uh, the real reality and the narrator is experiencing of it. And this leads me to the next point, which is we're dealing with apocalyptic visions here. The The Bible is mentioned twice in this section, once as reading material, and the second time as a book with an apocalyptic ending, the book of Revelation. On one level, I, I think that this narrative is giving us a materialistic apocalyptic vision but still trying to rescue the idea of consciousness and maybe even the idea of souls as concepts, though the universe maybe doesn't care about us much as beings, uh, physical beings. Um, we, we, the consciousness persists somehow. And this is evident in the fact that the narrator has become a being of pure consciousness in order to experience all of this. 
and that he witnesses what I'm going to call the transmigration of souls, though who knows exactly what Hodgson had in mind when he's talking about these red lights with faces returning to this kind of green source or floating maybe towards it. This is kind of an image of a, of a prime mover who puts everything out from it and returns everything to it. I'm referring here to the green sun. And, and finally, I think we have concepts here that include the idea of the eternal return, which is the notion that the universe repeats itself infinitely and sort of adds weight to our actions in doing so, that is combined with a sort of spiritual plane of existence. And all of this, all of this stuff is combined with a, a really, I find, a strange perversion of the divine comedy where the lover of the recluse stands in for Beatrice, complete with the vision of paradise that is completely isolated the the recluse so he can fixate on the object of love to the de detriment of literally everything else that has ever existed so this is really kind of more of a hell than a paradise but the recluse thinks of it as paradise which is which is the perversion of the um heaven you know so all of that is present here. As a side note, we're going to be talking about how much of this section is a response to The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Maybe the whole novel is, who knows? That's all coming up in the discussion episode as well. And as a last note, uh, another chapter title revision here. Chapter 15 is called The Noise in the Night. Uh, my new title is, again, these are all rough drafts. <laughs> Time passes rapidly in the study. Pepper turns to dust. Also, it's November now, so we're 11 months into the year of strange occurrences that the diary appears to cover. Those are my kind of drive-by notes that will all come up in our discussion episode at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, I love your chapter titles are actually one-sentence uh, synopses of the chapters. <laughs> <laughs> They're all rough drafts, man. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> well, we are... At the last part of the main narrative now, so we're, we're near the end of our episode here and we can get to that discussion that I think we're both really eager to, to go do. So uh, we, you know, we will actually return to the frame though, of course, but this part of the, the main narrative here, this is uh, chapters 23 through 26 and the recluse is back at his house. It's back to the present of the narrative. The weird time travel business has also been undone, uh, or at least he's gone back. It's not really clear, but Pepper is dead, and, and this is pretty heartbreaking. Uh, Hudson does a good job of building up hope and then dread and then giving us the news here. This is a really moving part of the, the story. And look, uh, things are not all right. Uh, this section of the narrative opens with maybe the sense that the adventure is over and we're wrapping up, but it isn't and we're not. Uh, some time passes and the narrator now has gotten another dog, though not as a pet, just as a guardian. And he's not letting the dog in the house. He's not bonding with this dog either. He's obviously pretty distraught about Pepper's death. Uh, and the house is still under some kind of attack. Uh, there are strange padding footsteps in the garden. Uh, the dog barks and barks. The cat that belongs to Mary is agitated. Uh, and then the cat, who is uh, outside on a window ledge, is taken by some kind of white glowing hand thing. And in the morning, the narrator sees that the new dog has a weird wound. It's uh, an open wound about the shape of a handprint. 
That night, the recluse keeps watch. And in the middle of this chapter, by the way, the, the narrative switches to the present tense, though the, the journal entry must still have been composed after the events he's describing, because, you know, that's usually how journaling works. Uh, so the narrator is keeping watch, and he suddenly feels as if he's lost control of his body. He gets up, goes to the door, he begins to unlock it, even though he doesn't want to, and he fights the impulses. He fights what feels like some kind of mind control, and he actually wins. Uh, he wakes up a few hours later on the floor in front of the door, and he quickly locks it all back up and then sleeps for a while. Uh, and then he goes and, and checks on the dog, whose wound is getting worse and, and is now also not eating. And we get a great description of that wound here as well. Uh, it has a, a whitish fungoid appearance at this point. Uh, the next chapter is still in the present tense, and the, the narrator awakens in the night in his study. Uh, he must have fallen asleep in his chair again. He strikes a match to get some light and notices a luminous speck in the distance. But it's, it's not the distance. It's actually coming from his hand. And it turns out that he has a small wound of his own that is similar to the dog's, and it is glowing white in the dark. Uh, somewhere along the way in the story, he was scratched by whatever was prowling around in the garden, uh, whatever it is that took the cat and wounded the dog. And now, over uh, just a single page, the recluse tells us that over the next few days, the wound spreads. Half his body now has been taken over by the dread growth, and he knows that tomorrow it is going to begin to eat his face. And he wants to kill himself, even though he knows that that is a sin and he'll go to hell. And he prays. He prays to God and to Jesus, and he begs for forgiveness for his intended suicide. But then he hears something down in the cellars. It's the trap door opening and footsteps coming up to the study. And the last entry in the journal is, There is something fumbling at the door handle. Oh God, help me now. Jesus, the door is opening slowly. Something. And that's it. And so we'll uh, we'll pick up in a moment with the final chapter, the return to the frame narrative. Yeah, my notes for these last sections are a little more a little more scattershot as the as the narrator as the as the story's winding down. Um, here's a few things to point out, though. The narrator, the recluse, continues to be haunted by another thing. This is the thing in the arena. I think it's broken into this reality somehow. It's bioluminescent and it leaves a mark that's poisonous. We see that the recluse is frightened by the clock, or, or rather, in this case, it's the clock's shadow, which must be symbolic in some way, though I'm not exactly sure how. Again, I'm not quite sure that Hodgson has deeply developed some of these themes in the story uh, as fully or satisfyingly as I, as I might want him to. The recluse describes his actions when he when he has this lack of volition that's we, we teased earlier uh, that he's acting in a mechanical way. Um, and I, and I wonder if this is uh, a critique of the vision of the mechanical universe. And now that the, now the narrator is just a part of it an inescapable part of it. If this is a critique of the idea of the eternal return. Um, this kind of infinite cycling of the universe from death to rebirth that we kind of can't escape our lives or our actions in, in, in any way. Mary doesn't seem to be impacted by anything unusual <laughs> going on in the house. Uh, and also she has a cat uh, somehow and Pepper's gone. And this to me makes me wonder if the 
recluse returned to a, like a slightly different universe, a slightly different version of the universe uh, that has gone through a whole cycle. And he returned to this point where there's a cat now and no pepper. I don't know. And his memories are the same. Um, and, and the last thing I want to point out here, uh, I know these are really kind of disjointed notes, but we're getting to the end of the story and we'll, we'll be picking up a lot more in the discussion is this sentiment that the recluse has where he says, I shall become a mass of living corruption. Um, I think he was kind of on his way to becoming this already, but this is it kind of manifesting in the physical world with this fungal infection that's bioluminescent. And, and I, and I want to point out that the, the thing in the arena kind of glows green a little bit um, and is clearly, again, a a perversion of the green that we see throughout the story. So I think corruption is, is really the right word here. You know, this imagery is just really, really creepy. I, I mean, you know, people point out the, the use of, of mushrooms or fungal things as being, you know, quintessentially Lovecraftian, uh, although tentacles have somehow for some reason taken over the, the pop culture idea of, of Lovecraftian. But here it is in, in Hodgson, you know, full on before Lovecraft was doing it is because there is something weird and gross about mushrooms for sure. And he does a great job of deploying that imagery here. I mean, the idea of 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 being consumed by a fungal growth, a bioluminescent fungal growth, uh, definitely kept me up when I was reading this. When I was reading this book, in ways that other types of horror just just would not. Yeah, I mean, even in contemporary culture, the video game series The Last of Us is based on this idea that that instead of zombies, people uh, have succumb to these insane fungal infections and have become like zombies, but they're giant, sentient, uh, terrifying mushroom people hybrids. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's an idea that stayed with us in, in horror uh, that really has its roots in, in weird fiction. And Jeff Vandermeer has an entire series of, of novels in which uh, fungus people <laughs> play a big role. And in fact, we're going to be looking at some of that uh, on Elder Sign. But uh, that is a few months from now, so we, we don't need to get distracted by that right now since we are so close to the end of The House on the Borderland here. So uh, we end where we began with the, the frame narrative of our two Englishmen on a fishing trip in Western Ireland. They've both read the manuscript, and the narrator of the, the frame narrative here is interested in going back to the ruins where they found it, but his companion is definitely not up to that. Uh, the rest of their trip is a little awkward, uh, at least it seems that way to me, but they have a driver coming to get them, and when the driver arrives, they ask him about the ruins and about the pit, and they get a little bit of information. But all they really learn is that the pit opened up a long time ago, uh, after the house itself had been abandoned for a very long time, but also that just before it opened up, some dude had bought it and moved into it with an old woman. Uh, they had a train of donkeys bringing their possessions to it. And then no one ever saw them again, except for the delivery man, who would never tell anyone anything about what was going on up at the house. And that's all we learn. Uh, perhaps nothing more than we actually already knew. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about this chapter in the, the craft part of our discussion because I was a little bit disappointed by this as, uh, as a conclusion to the, what is otherwise a really awesome weird fiction story. But we do actually end on a horrific note, I should say. And this is when the, the author of the frame narrative tells us that even now, sometimes in his dreams, he sees the pit. And that's the end. Yeah, what an ending indeed. And I think it is best 
to approach this story as a as a campfire tale because that's where its power lies i think in kind of the idea of staying up late at night uh with uh, a friend or, or a few friends and reading a haunted manuscript over firelight in the in the middle of the back country i mean it's 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 great and i and i really like how hodgson invites us the the audience to ask whether or not the manuscript is the work of a madman or if this really happened, uh, this is something obviously we'll take up in the discussion. Uh, regarding your disappointment in the in the final frame chapter, I'm not sure that there's a critic who has read this story who would hesitate to call this novel flawed. And I, as far as this novel does work, I, I really think it works in spite of itself. And much of our you know, craft discussion of this novel will, I think, be caught up in this in the structure of the novel more than anything else. This is a story that is bloated with ideas that that push and pull against one another to really varying degrees of success. And so we're going to have to take the narrative apart a little bit to see if the events of the story offer a, a deeper meaning to the narrative as a whole. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, and we're going to be uh, set up pretty well to do the discussion. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Join us on our Clay Temple forum on our website or on Reddit, on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, uh, to let us know what you thought of our recap of The House on the Borderland. And before we go, we do just want to say thank you to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode and the one that's going to follow. Uh, We've had a great time doing this today, and we will be back in just a few more days with our discussion of The House on the Borderland. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.